0: All right, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to be at today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, then there's one in the pew in front of you. Or you can also use your smartphone or tablet, Uh, especially if you have the YouVersion Bible app, then you can go to the events section and you can find the event for today and follow along in the service there as well. Revelation chapter 5 as we continue our series through the book of Revelation and uh, looking at this tremendous book. Uh, My name is Cody, I'm the pastor here at Redemption, and it's my honor to be able to serve you in the scriptures, to be able to open the Bible, to read it, and to study it together, and I'm looking forward to what God has for us today. Uh, There was an elementary age boy, and he was just really infatuated with kites. And so uh, he decided one day that he was going to build His own kite, and so he got all the materials together, figured it out, and spent a number of days putting this thing together and crafting it and making sure it was going to do a good do a good job flying. And uh, one one day, uh, a couple days afterward, there was a a windy day, and it was the perfect day to go fly his kite. So he goes out into the uh, the field, the uh, the park uh, near his house, and you know gets the fly the kite to go up into the air. And man, it's flying! It's beautiful! It's glorious! It's working! And he got it he got it all done. And uh, it go it starts. higher and higher, and you know, like, you know, if, if you remember flying a kite, uh, uh, one of the things that you want to do is just, how high can I get this thing to go? You know, so he gets it going higher and higher, and uh, it's just flying way up there, and it's such an amazing feat, amazing sight to see. Well, then, uh, out of nowhere, this really strong gust comes, and it Pulls on the kite so hard that it snaps the string and to his horror he watches the kite fly off into the distance and disappear from sight and and you know he's just wondering what do I do now I I don't even I don't even know how to figure out how to get this kite kite back and so uh, a couple days later he's walking uh, through town and he notices in the toy store window a a kite he's like wow that's interesting that's amazing and he gets closer and he recognizes it's my kite I, I, that's the kite that I made, oh, this is a, what an amazing thing, I thought it was gone forever, but they found it, and now here it is, so he goes in, and he starts to explain the situation to the store clerk, and, uh, the store clerk's like, nice story, kid, you're gonna have to buy the kite, you know, that's, that's just not the way we do things, if you want it, you're gonna have to buy it, and so he's a little bit freaked out by it, and he runs home, and, uh, he grabs his, you know, all, all the money he can find, he scrounges it all together, and he, and he gets, uh, literally all down to his very last penny, All of his money that he has is just enough to buy the kite. and So he goes down, and he buys the kite, and he he gets it back. And as he's leaving the store, he looks at the kite, and he says to the kite, Now you are twice mine, because I made you, and now I bought you. And that's the exact same picture, the same story for you and for me. We twice belong to God, because he made you, and he bought you. That's the whole idea of what we see happening in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 as what we're looking at. You see, in uh, Revelation 4 and 5, we see that God is worshipped in chapter 4 as the creator. He's the one who made you. In chapter 5, we see that uh, God is worshipped, Jesus is worshipped as the redeemer, the one who bought you with his blood. And so our big idea as we look at Revelation 5 today is this, Jesus is worthy to receive worship because he alone is the Redeemer. All right, so let's read the chapter together. Uh, There's 14 verses in uh, chapter 5, so we'll read the whole chapter, and then we'll go back through and break it down. Revelation 5.1 says this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it, but... One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll uh, out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have uh, have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth." Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven And on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity uh, we have today to open your word, to look at it, to read it, and to study it. And we thank you that, uh, God, you have given us your word, and you've given us this vision of the future, that we can see a little glimpse into uh, what the future holds, and we pray that uh, we would become um, more infatuated with you as a result, that we would see you as high and lifted up and to be glorified and worshiped. And so we pray that you you would be among us, that you would unveil your word to our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today we're going to look at Revelation five in two parts, uh, verses one through seven is the first part. The Lamb is worthy, and then eight through fourteen the Lamb is worshipped. Now, in our big idea, we used a word, the Redeemer, and you saw that as we read through chapter five. And the word redemption or to redeem it actually comes from uh, ancient Rome and how they actually had the slave uh, slave trade or slavery. How they practiced slavery in ancient Rome and uh, approximately depending on where where you were at in ancient Rome, uh, 20% and upwards to 40% of the population of, of the people of Rome were slaves. You, they would enter into slavery for various reasons. It might be that you had a debt you couldn't pay off, and so you would become a slave that way, uh, or you fell on hard times, and uh, to avoid um, abject poverty, people would enter into slavery for that reason, or some people were just captured in war, and they became slaves. That way. And so the idea of slavery uh, was not the same as American slavery uh, by far, uh, but it wasn't quite like our workforce. It was somewhere in between, was the idea of, of slavery in ancient Rome. Uh, and so, the, you know, in this, the idea of redemption or to redeem came from that. And what, what it was is that if someone was, uh, was willing to go and purchase a slave, and then set the slave free, that was redeeming the slave. That that, that was the whole idea of redemption. That's where the whole concept comes from. And and, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that this picture of redemption plays a huge role in our understanding of the Bible and Jesus and who he is. He's called the Redeemer. Why? Because you were a slave to sin and death. But Jesus' blood purchased you from that, and he has set you free. What an amazing thing Jesus has done. And so when we see Jesus as the Redeemer, we're seeing him as the one who has purchased our freedom with the sacrifice of his bloody death. So let's look at this first piece together. Worthy is the Lamb in verses 1 through 7. Look back at verse 1. It says this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, this is a continuation. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is a continuation of chapter 4. We're in the same setting. We're in the same place. John in chapter 4 is taken into the heavenly realm and he sees the throne room of God. And in chapter 4, the entire focus is God's throne over and over and over again. I think it was 13 separate times through chapter four. God's throne is mentioned in reference. It's the focal point of chapter four. Now we're still there in chapter five. It's still God's throne room, but the focus shifts not to the throne, but to the scroll that is in the hand of God, the father, as he sits on the throne. Now a scroll is, uh, you know, the way that they would write things and, In uh, this era, this time time period, and the scroll would be uh, something that would be unrolled, not up and down the way that maybe you would think if you're thinking of like, you know, um, uh, a Knights movie, you know, like England or whatever, but it's actually sideways. So you would unravel the scroll sideways and the writing would be in about three inch columns uh, going down the scroll. Um, And what you would do is you would actually unravel some and then roll it up on another roll and you would only unravel a a little bit of what you needed to to read and you would just kind of roll it up so it would stay all neat and, and tidy. And so what John sees here, he sees this, this scroll, and, and typically a scroll, you know, a common scroll, that let's say a scroll that would hold the book of Revelation, it would be about 15 feet long. That, that's about how it would work, so it wouldn't be pages, you just unravel it and un, unroll it as you go. Now, in this, what we see is that there are uh, two specific descriptors of this scroll that we see in the hand. Of God. Number one, we see that the this this descriptor is that it has writing on the inside and on the back. It's written on both sides of the paper, which is which is uncommon. It's not unheard of. It's not like it never happened, but it was a really uncommon thing to take place in this era. Typically they, they wouldn't do that. They would just fill up one scroll and that would be it. But there were times when they, they would end up writing on the back as well. And really what that meant was you ran out of room. That you ran out of room on the inside, so you had to write on the outside as well. That the scroll is filled up. That's the imagery. The scroll is filled. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to be that can be added uh, to this scroll. The, the second point or description that we're given about it is that it has seven seals on it. Um, And this idea of seven seals, it it carries the idea of an official document. In this era, when you had official documents, you would seal them, uh, and that's what made them an official kind of a thing. And the way that they would seal it is essentially they would roll the scroll up into one roll, and then they would tie a string around it, and where they tied the knot, they would put a blob of hot wax, press it with a signet, and that would seal the scroll. Now, this particular scroll has seven seals to it. That's what's going on. With this one. Now, the the idea of seven is that all seven seals have to be removed in order to read it. It's not like you pop one off and you can read some, and then you got to pop another one off in order to get to the rest. No, all seven have to be removed in order to have access to what's taking place. Now, the, the question to ask is, well, what's written on the scroll, and why are there seven seals? And here's my, you know, I'll just, I'll, you know, let you know after my many years of Bible reading and Bible study and preaching, here's my, um, here's my theological answer for you. I have no idea. <laughs> the Bible just doesn't say. Uh, and I think it's wise for us when the Bible doesn't say things that we don't say things as well. I think it's important for us to do that. There have been a lot of people who have had a lot of ideas about what they think is written on it and what's it, what it's all about, and they come up with all of these ideas and, and things, and it, it's it, it literally just kind of, it's just speculation. There, there's just opinions that people have about all sorts of things. Some people have said, well, it's the book of Revelation, or maybe it's the Old and New Testament and, and whatever, and, and uh, you know, people have all sorts of ideas about it, and I don't think any of those ideas fit. Why? Because in verses 3 and 4, we read that no one can look at it. No one can read it. And we're literally reading it right now. So that makes no sense for it to be no one reading it if, uh, if it was some of the Bible or something like that. There's one ancient idea that sort of fits into this. And this is just, by the, it's just speculative, right? So this isn't to say this is what it is. This is the only idea that I've heard anybody offer that makes any sense at all. It's that in this era, when somebody had a will, you know, like a living will and testament... Uh, that they would they would commonly take a will and they would seal it this way with seven seals. And so the imagery would be really familiar to them culturally. They would understand that that's a will. It's like God's will for all of eternity that only he knows. That's kind of the idea. That's the one idea that I think fits pretty well. But the big thing to know is we have no idea what it actually is. Is what's written on it? Why the seven seals? Um, it's so it's a mysterious kind of a thing, but what we do see is verse 2 says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? It's as though the strong angel is issuing a challenge to all of creation to see if there's any being who would step forward on the basis of worthiness. Is there anybody who can approach God and take this scroll from his hand? Is there any being that's worthy? Well, verse 3 says this: And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. The, The tension builds as no one can open it. John, here as he's writing this, his description is complete and total. He says, No one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, he's, he's being complete and total with his description, that there's not a single being in all of creation for all of time who's worthy. Notice it says verse 3, or to look at it. Now, this doesn't mean that nobody could look at it. Otherwise, John couldn't write this because he looked at it, right? That's, that's not what it means there. It's not that you couldn't notice that it was there. Nobody can look at it. What it means is that you can't read it. No one's, no one's worthy to look at it, to open it, to read it kind of a thing is what's going on here. And so John says there's no one who can do this. This is, uh, this is something that is a, a big, you know, kind of a big deal. And the reason we know it's such a big deal, verse 4, look, So I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. John wept much. This idea of weeping much is that he's losing it. It's not like, oh, I had a single tear roll down my cheek. He is ugly crying, right? Ladies, you understand what I mean by that. He is just like uncontrollable, hide your face, bury it in your hands. He is losing it because this is such a massive thing. Why? Because this scroll is significantly and vitally connected uh, to the completion of Jesus's redeeming work. That's what we see taking place in the rest of the chapter. That this scroll has something connected to Jesus and his redeeming work. And and so John is weeping as though to say, it it, it can't be finished, it can't be completed, it can't be uh, all all taken into uh, account and, and all done. You see, in one sense, the redemption of Jesus is totally complete. Remember what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished that phrase me is uh, the Greek phrase tetelestai, which means paid in full. That, that in one sense, Jesus' redemption of you is total and complete. There's nothing you can add to it. You don't need to pay Jesus back for his purchase of your soul. There's nothing that you do to make yourself worthy to receive the redemption that Jesus has purchased for you, it's that he has done this for you on your behalf, and, and he has done it totally and completely. There's nothing you can add, there's nothing that you can take away, it is eternally sufficient. But in another sense, it's incomplete, because it, it's incomplete in this idea that though Jesus has paid for it, he has yet to take possession of it. It's, it's like putting a down payment on maybe a home or something like that. You put the down payment on and you're waiting for the time where you're going to take possession. You've already done the purchase part of it, but you haven't received the possession as of yet. And so that's that's kind of what's taking place here in this heavenly scene. This scroll is the final part to complete Jesus' victory over evil and establish his eternal kingdom. The we, we know this to be true because as we look through what's going to take place next week in chapter 6, Jesus starts removing these seals and what takes place is the judgment of God coming upon the earth, which is like the domino that's being pushed that gets us to his eternal kingdom. It, it gets us to Jesus dealing with, with evil. It's all wrongs being righted. And so this is vitally connected. And so John is he's weeping because no one is worthy. That, that there's no hope, that it's, it's as though we've, we're at this sticking point and we can't move forward. And so he's just, he's ugly crying. He's just losing it. But, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. See, as the weight of the unworthiness of all creation to be able to redeem ourselves presses down on John, attention is called to someone who is worthy just as all hope is being lost just as there's there's no way to move forward now attention is called to someone who is worthy notice the way that Jesus is described here it says one of the elders says behold the lion of the tribe of judah This is one of two descriptors of Jesus that are given as uh, Jesus as the Messiah. The Messiah is a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. Uh, It means the anointed one. And and so whenever uh, someone in the Old Testament was anointed with oil, uh, it was sort of symbolic of this idea. Uh, very similar to the way that today during our child dedication, we anoint the kids uh, with oil that are being dedicated. It's, it's a, an anointing kind of a thing. But the anointed one in terms of Messiah is the idea that it is God who comes to deliver fallen humanity from our sinfulness. That's the idea of the anointed one. It's, it's that we have this, this thing within us that cries out for the righteous king. And every time we go through an election, we realize the politician can't save us because they have this, this uh, you know, campaign where they're, they're, they're offering hope and they're saying, well, I can change it and I can make it better and then you elect them and you know what happens? It gets worse. I don't care who they are. It just gets worse. Uh, that's just the way it goes. Why? Because only King Jesus can be on that throne. Only King Jesus can rule and to reign. And so that's the idea of the Messiah. Now, the idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah, it's a title that's all over the Old Testament. We see it taking place all all over in the Old Testament. And it was first prophesied. It was first shows up in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 through 10 says this, Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one uh, whom all nations will honor. And so here we see this in Genesis 49, this first prophecy of Messiah like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The second descriptor of Messiah that we see there, that's assigned to Jesus, is in verse five: the root of David. Now, this is this is interesting because in Second Samuel seven, David is promised to have the Messiah come through his line. That that. Uh, God, you know, He says, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. I'm living in this house, and you're living in a tent, and that's weird. God, I should build you a house. And God says, thanks, but no thanks. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. And he says that I'm going to have my Messiah come through your line. And David's just overwhelmed by this. Now, here's what the amazing thing is. Throughout the Bible, uh, the Messiah is referred to as the son of David. Right? That, that's the a title Jesus gave, took to himself the son of David. but here notice that it's sort of turned on its head it's sort of reversed that Jesus was referred to as the root of David, the root of David that Throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah was shown as the one who would come from David. And here Jesus says, I'm actually your source, David. I'm the one who was before you. I'm the one who uh, who is your source, not the other way around. So he takes it and takes this concept and turns it on his head. Warren Wiersbe says it like this, The Redeemer had to be near of kin, willing to redeem, and able to redeem. Jesus Christ meets all of these qualifications. He became flesh, so he's our kinsman. He loves us and is willing to redeem. And he paid the price, so he is able to redeem. You see, what we see here is that Jesus is described as this this, uh, Messiah, as this kinsman redeemer, as this one who would be Uh, like us and yet not like us, to redeem us. And and we are told that he prevails. See that there in verse 5? You see, Jesus prevailed and that he is worthy in two different ways. Number one, he's worthy because of who he is. He's God. He's Messiah. He is the one who is perfect and holy and blameless. And Jesus also is the one who is worthy because of his achievement and his sacrificial death on your behalf. That Jesus has, he's worthy because of who he is, and he's worthy because of what he does. That that's what's taking place in, in this picture of Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 6. It says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. John turns... And as he turns, a figure is seen central to everything. Did you catch it, how it says that, that he was in the midst of? That means central to, he's in the middle of. That in this scene, you have the throne of God, you have you know, the sea of glass, and you have the seven you know, burning uh, flames, and you have the four living creatures that are near the throne, and 24 elders surrounding the throne. In the middle of all of that is a figure. Now, as John turns around, what would you think he'd be expecting to see? based on verse five, a lion, right? He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he turns around and he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb instead. You know what's interesting about this word lamb? The the word that he chooses here, John chooses for lamb, isn't just lamb, but it's like little delicate lamb. That's the idea that he, he turns around to see. It's a, it's a stark contrast. It's like wildly uh, um, uh, different than what he was expecting to see. It's a delicate little lamb. And, and this lamb, it looks like, notice what it says there. Uh, behold, uh, I look, verse 6, and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Uh, there's this lamb looking as though it had been slain. Now, this would be not just a, uh, a, a really cute picture of a little lamb, but actually a horrific picture. The idea of a lamb as though it had been slain is the idea, the literal word of slain is the idea of slaughtered or slit-throated is the literal idea of this. This is a very graphic very crazy image that John turns to see that Jesus, as he sees Jesus, he literally carries the scars from his cross into eternity. Think about that for just a moment. God, who is uh, worthy of all honor and praise and glory, steps into human history, is rejected by humanity, goes to a Roman cross, is tortured and killed and murdered, laying his life down and, and he literally takes on flesh. God takes on flesh and eternally carries the scars. The the he he alters himself for you. What an amazing thing. It's like when Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples. Remember in John chapter 20, he appears to his disciples and, uh, you know, Thomas was doubting. And so Jesus says, here, come here, stick your finger in my, in my hands, in the holes of my hands. Put your hand in my side. The, the, oh, the wounds are still there. The wounds that Jesus took as the penalty, as the price for your sin, for my sin, he still bears to this day. What, what an amazing thing. What a crazy thing. You see, Jesus is displayed as both sympathetic and powerful. Do you see that? That he's, he's both. He's the lion and the lamb. He's ferociously powerful, and yet he's humbly gentle. He's this perfect mixture of toughness and tenderness. What an amazing thing we see from Jesus. David Guzik says it like this, the lamb looks as though it had been slain. This lamb had the marks of sacrifice on it. The coming judgment, beginning in Revelation chapter, Revelation chapter six, is dedicated uh, excuse me, is dictated and administered by a lamb who already offered a way of escape from that judgment by his own sacrifice. The judgment will come upon a world that hates the lamb and all he stands for and rejects his offer of salvation that comes from the lamb's self-sacrifice. This cannot be overstated, that all of the judgment that's about to come as we get into chapter 6 and following of of the book of Revelation, all of the destruction that's going to take place, Jesus has already done uh, all that needs to be done to offer the way of escape. He's already given himself as a sacrifice. He's already taken the penalty of sin upon himself. And the only ones who are going to take on the wrath of the lamb are those who reject him and hate him. It's not as though Jesus is just going to beat up a bunch of people because he just had a bad day. You know, he didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed and his back hurts a little bit and he's cranky and, you know, his coffee was cold, it wasn't hot, and so now he's just mad. He's just going to throw stuff and be mean. That's not the picture of Jesus. It's that he has done everything in order to redeem humanity to himself. He's gone to the furthest extents to lay down his life and alter his body physically physically For eternity, in order to redeem us. And yet, and yet, people still reject him. Now, we also see in verse six that there are three sets of sevens uh, that take place here at the end uh, of verse six, uh, describing Jesus. Now, when you think of this, if you were to draw this, you're like, man, this is a weird picture of Jesus. He's got seven horns and he's got seven eyes. This is freaky Jesus, right? Like, what is happening with this idea? Now, Remember, what we're looking at is not necessarily a literal idea. It's giving us concepts uh, to grasp. Remember that uh, in chapter one, Jesus was walking in the midst of seven candlesticks uh, that that the idea there was that they represented the church, and Jesus is in the middle of his church. All right? So there are things that take place that represent something else. And the number seven significantly represents not just seven, not that there are seven of them, but it's completeness and wholeness. That's the idea of the number seven. So when it says Jesus has seven horns, what it's saying is, uh, here, here's, maybe you'll, you'll grab, grab it this way. You ever heard this phrase? Mess with the bull, get the horns. What does that mean? That means that thing is strong, right? If you mess with it, you're not going to like it. Why? Because the horn is a symbol of its power. Make sense? So the idea of Jesus having seven horns is that he has all the power. That's the concept. His power is total and complete. Uh, a, a theological term for that is that he's um, omnipotent. Uh, the word went out of my head for a second. Omnipotent. That's the idea of, of Jesus being all-powerful. Now, he has, he's also shown as having seven eyes. Do you see that there in verse 6? Seven eyes. Um, what, it, what do eyes mean? Well, we saw this earlier, if you were with us last week for chapter 4, that the living creatures are full of eyes all over the place, and we saw that that meant that they have understanding, knowledge, wisdom, And that Jesus has seven, not that he has seven eyes, he looks weird, but that he has all the knowledge. He has all the wisdom. It's total, it's complete, it's not lacking at all. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And then we also see the connection of the eyes. Notice there at the end of verse 6, he says, The seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. That that Jesus also has, uh, he, he has the ability to be in all places at once. Omnipresence is what that is. So what this is describing for us is that the Lamb, that Jesus, has God's attributes. He bears the scars of his sacrifice, but he's not seen as an object of pity but instead as an object of power. That's what's taking place here. That Jesus' sacrifice is not something that we look at and go, oh man, Jesus, I'm so sorry that those mean Romans, they just beat you up and they were, they were so terrible to you. And that, oh, the, the, the friends that you had, they betrayed you and ran away. And the Jews, they just betrayed you and they sacrificed you. No, Jesus said, I am not having my life taken away by anybody. I'm laying it down of my own accord. That Jesus gave his life. It's a symbol of his strength, not his weakness. And then uh, we see there uh, in verse 7 that it says, Then he, this is where the lamb is referred to as he, clearly drawing the line to Jesus. Um, and, uh, and we see that this is what's taking place there. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, Jesus has been referred to as a lamb before. Remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist actually refers to Jesus as uh, the Lamb. It says there in John 1:29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." And so this idea of a lamb and, and, and the lion, it's, it's not the literal lions and literal lambs that John's looking at. it's depictions and, and uh, pictures of Jesus and who He is, and that Jesus has prevailed though uh, um, Jesus has prevailed through His identity. And also through his sacrifice. He's the one who's prevailed. This is what makes him worthy. And he steps forward to take the scroll. What what do we see next? Well, we saw that the lamb is worthy in verses 1 through 7. The second piece is that the lamb is worshipped in verses 8 through 14. It sounds like there's a hum going on up here. I don't know if it's the drums or something like that. Um, But uh, uh, so Jesus is uh, uh, worshipped in verses 8 through 14. Look at verse 8. It says this. Now, when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, the moment that Jesus takes the scroll, it changes everything. Everything shifts. John is weeping uncontrollably and just losing it. And then Jesus shows up and takes the scroll and then praise erupts out of heaven. And this section, what we see here in verses 8 through 14, it's centered around three different songs that are being sung. That there's praise to Jesus that's being offered. Notice in verse 8 that we see the four living creatures. That's taking us back to chapter 4 and the idea of these, these four, we, we noted them as angels, they're cherubim, and uh, they're, they're there. And they represent all of God's creation in heaven and on earth. They, they represent the angels, the angelic hosts, uh, because they are angels. They also have individual faces that represent all of God's creation. And then we also see the 24 elders, and we saw last week as well, that those elders represent all of God's people, all of the ones who are redeemed, all of those who have Get, put their faith in the Lord across all of time. And their immediate response, these elders and these uh, uh, four living creatures, their immediate response is to fall face down in worship. See that there? That they fell down before the Lamb. Now what this is not is like an involuntary faint. That, that's not what's taking place here. This is a purposeful bowing themselves down. Uh, That they are laying themselves down before the Lord. The idea of worship here is, uh, uh, the word itself literally means to lay down prostrate before somebody. That, That you are putting your forehead in the dirt. That's the concept. That you are completely submitted, you are completely vulnerable, you are completely exalting someone else. And so they're laying down before the Lord. And these 24 elders, notice what they have, they each have a couple of things. They each have a harp. And so, like we said before, the 24 elders, they represent God's people. Uh, We could say they represent the church. And so this represents your future, yours and my future. And you're like... That's cool they have a harp, but I don't know how to play an instrument. Which, by the way, this verse is where we get the image of, you know, heaven being where you sit on a cloud and play a harp. It's that verse right there. Um, it may not necessarily be a literal harp. Maybe they had guitars. I don't know. John just didn't have a word for guitar. He just had the word harp. But the idea there is that they're playing instruments. And, and the, the idea is that they're offering musical praise to Jesus. The second thing that they have, look there in verse 8, is they, they have a bowl Full of incense, and so they're offering prayerful praise. They're offering musical praise and prayerful praise uh, all at once. Now, a couple things about this bowl full of incense uh, that they are—we're told there—that the incense is actually the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of the saints. Now, these 24 elders are not acting as mediators that they represent other people in the church and that they've prayed and that they're now bringing the prayers before the Lord as if somehow, uh, you know, a priest or something would be your surrogate before the Lord or something like that or your mediator before the Lord. This is actually the saints offering their prayers. That's what it is. They represent all of God's people. So these are the saints praying, now, uh, 1 Timothy two five says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, or God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. That I can't be a mediator between you and God. That, that uh, you know, you can't be a mediator between God and somebody else, but that Jesus alone holds that place. That he's the one who gives us access to God. I'm not closer to God than you are. Uh, you're not closer to God than the person sitting next to you, that we all have equal access to him, and it's through Jesus. That, that's what's taking place here. Now, notice the prayers that they're in golden bowls. I think this is interesting, that that what the golden bowls shows us is that God values your prayers, that when you pray, God, God counts them as precious, and he holds them in golden bowls. What an, what an amazing idea. And then also, he likens the prayers to incense. Do you see that there in verse 8? That they are, they're golden bowls and they're full of incense. That, that incense carries the idea of a pleasing aroma. That when God hears your prayers, it's like, it's like s- smelling something that smells nice. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That, that he, he sees them uh, as, as valuable, as precious, and pleasing. And the idea of the, the, um, the incense is like you know, the smoke rising before the Lord. And as your prayers go up, they rise to the Lord, David Guzik says this. Do you know what I really like about the connection between incense and uh, and it being a picture or representation of of our prayers? You've got to have some fire for the, or for the or, or the incense won't work. Isn't that true of our prayers? You got to have some fire. How dreadful when our prayers are so cold. I, I love that picture of it as well. That, that if you just put incense in a bowl, it doesn't do anything. You got to actually light it on fire. As well, notice what's happening here in verse nine. And they, these uh, these uh, elders, they sang a new song, saying, "You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth." Now, this song is sung by the twenty-four elders. And the way we know this is absolutely true, because in verse 8 we see that the, the four living creatures are also noted here, but the words of the song don't make any sense in the mouth of an angel. The, the Angels aren't redeemed. Angels, nowhere in the scriptures do we ever find a place where Jesus laid his life down to, to purchase the angel's salvation. Nowhere do we find in the scripture where uh, Jesus says, or, or the, the word of God says that uh, the angels are kings and priests of the Lord. But we do find those two concepts for uh, those who trust in the Lord. You see, Uh, These are things that are only true of human beings and specifically only those who have put their trust in Jesus' sacrifice for them. And here Jesus is being exalted because of his worthiness. You see that there in verse 9? You are worthy to take the scroll. That as Jesus takes the scroll, they erupt in praise saying, you're worthy to do this. It's right for you to do this. You belong in this place that his worthiness is being seen. Why? Because he's creator in chapter 4, but here in chapter 5, he's the redeemer. That's why you redeemed us. You you were slain, Jesus. You laid down your life. Your blood was spilled and you've purchased people from every tribe and tongue and nation across the world. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Kind of a funny way to say that, right? It's like a five-year-old started talking about it, right? Um, The second song that we see here, it's actually sung by the angels. Um, Here's something that's interesting. It's something that you can only grasp if you're going through the way that we're going. In chapter 4, the angels sing a song, and it provokes the elders to join in. Then they want to sing as well. Here in chapter 5, it's reversed. The elders sing a song, and now the angels want to join in. It's this idea that they're, they're having this kind of back and forth that's taking place. That that's at one point, one of them is provoking the others. At one point, the other one is. And we can have the same kind of an experience among ourselves, can't we? Are there ever times where you come in, you, you don't have to raise your hand, okay? You're, there are there times you ever come in and you're like, I don't want to sing nothing. I'm just, you saying that's fine. And then as you hear the people around you singing praise to God, something happens and you find yourself singing the words too. You find yourself joining in with the praise. Now I know that's not, it's probably the people in the other church down the street that do that. It's probably not you, but that's, that's something that happens to us, right? We can come in with sort of a cold heart and then somehow God uses the people around us and their praise to provoke us into praise. And maybe sometimes God's used your heart, your passion and your fire to rub off and spur somebody else into praise of the Lord. It's a tremendous thing when God does this among us, that that we are able to encourage one another in this praise. Now the saints... Uh, they're able to join in on this song, uh, whereas the angels couldn't join in on the previous song. And so uh, it could be that they're singing it there as well, but uh, it's it's specifically said that the uh, the angels are the ones that are sing- singing this song. And the number of them is lots and lots, right? <laughs> thousands of thousands and ten thousands times, ten. it's it's just a lot, it's innumerable. That's the idea. More than you can count that there is just this overwhelming number. And what's the song they're singing? Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You see, the song of the angels is not because they've received the blessing of Jesus' sacrifice, but because they are witnesses of it. That they're blown away by what Jesus has done. They see the sacrifice of Jesus. They see his redemption of you and me, and it blows their minds. First 1 Peter 1.12 says this, They were told that their message, uh, messages were not for themselves but for you, and now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Listen to this part. And it is also, uh, it is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. That, that as God is working in your life to provide salvation for you, to draw you to himself, to allow you to hear the glorious gospel of Jesus' blood paying the price for your sin, the angels look in awe and wonder, and they say, you would redeem that? Wow, God, you're so good. And I look at my life, and I think that is so true. God, you are so amazing that you would, you would pay my price. You would take my place. You would count me as worthy to be redeemed. What an amazing thing. And they they haven't experienced this redemption, but they they definitely get to witness it, and it blows their minds. God's greatness, His kindness, His mercy, and His grace are on mind-blowing display to the angels in our redemption through Jesus' blood. Verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. See, John uses all, all, the all-encompassing language, much like verse 3, that, that couldn't be more complete of a description of all all of creation. And so what we see happening here is that now that the saints have sung and now the angels have sung, now all of creation joins in to offer a shout of praise. There's this eruption of worshipful praise and adoration that each song causes another group to want to add their voice in praise of Jesus as the only one worthy because he sacrificed himself as Redeemer. Charles Spurgeon says this, depend not upon it, my hearer. You will never go to heaven unless you are prepared to worship Jesus Christ as God. They're all doing it there. You will have to come to it. And if you entertain the notion that he is a mere man or that he is anything less than God, I'm afraid you will have to begin at the beginning and learn what true religion means. You have a poor foundation to rest upon. I could not trust my soul with a mere man or believe in an atonement made by a mere man. I must see God himself putting his hand to so gigantic a work. See, in chapter 5, Jesus is being exalted as God. His proximity to the throne shows him as God. He's in the midst of all of it. He is um, uh, um, central to everything. He's the one that's worthy to take the scroll. He is worshipped. Uh, he, he is worshiped as the one who offered himself. He's also receiving that worship. And now here in verse 13, he's emphasized as equally worthy as God the Father. See that there? The worship is offered to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. It's very clear lines being drawn to say Jesus is God. Verse 14, then the four living creatures said, amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. You see, you've been created by God, and you've been redeemed by God. And this means that you are twice his, that you belong to him twice. He has a double claim on your life. There's a penalty for your sin, for my sin, and the price has to be paid. See, you can either choose to pay for it yourself, and that price is the eternal wrath of God that's also known as hell. That's one way to pay for your sin. It takes all of eternity. Or you can accept the payment that Jesus made by being your sacrificial lamb, that he took your place. His blood was spilled. His resurrection was made for you on your behalf. You see, if you reject Jesus and his offer of salvation, then you're counting his sacrifice as worthless. And as meaningless. But here's the truth. God is a gentleman. And so he will not force you to accept his offer of love. His offer of kindness. His offer of grace. His offer of relationship. You can reject him. You can do that. But don't reject him. Receive him. Step into the relationship that he offers. Here's how Romans says it in chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved for it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. So the question is this, have you believed in Jesus? Have you declared that faith in him? Or maybe it's time for you to come back to Jesus, because he's worthy of your praise as your creator and as your redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it together, and we pray that you would be honored and glorified among us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our creator. And thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to step into my place, our place, and to be that sacrificial lamb on our behalf. We want to exalt you and worship you together today. We pray in your name. Amen.